in a mall, no one can hear you scream. Shh, it's the Flavors. Hi guys, I'm Chris. Hey everybody, I'm Robert. And we're the Film Flamers. And it's time for another deep dive episode, and today we are going to be talking about Dawn of the Dead, George A. Romero's classic from 1978. And if you recall, last March we also covered a famous zombie movie where we covered the previous installment of the series, Night of the Living Dead, and also, I believe, your favorite horror film of all time. That's right. Night of the Dead is my favorite horror movie ever. I don't think that will ever change in my life. So I'm excited to be talking about the next installment in the franchise. And I believe we're just going to be doing this every March. You know, we're going to be creating a tradition of, you know, covering these classic zombie movies where we can. And probably next year doing uh, Day of the Dead. Yeah. I mean, to me, Day of the Dead is not quite as good as the first two, right? Um, But it doesn't get quite as bad as some of these after ones from that. So um, it'll be good. I actually haven't seen anything in this series post Day of the Dead. I have not seen Diary. Uh, I haven't – or I did see Land of the Dead, I believe. Okay. But was that with John Leguizamo? He's in that, yes. And Dennis Hopper. Okay. Yeah. I never liked seeing Dennis Hopper, but – I guess we'll get to that in two years, so. (laughs) But until then, uh, Dawn of the Dead, also known internationally as Zombie, is a 1978 Italian-American independent zombie horror film. Another fucking mouthful. Written and directed by George A. Romero and shot over the period of four months, starting in late 1977 in the Pennsylvania cities of Pittsburgh and Monroeville, with its primary location being the Monroeville Mall. It was the second film made in Romero's Dead series and shows on a larger scale the apocalyptic effects on society, though it shares no characters or settings from the earlier film. In the film, a phenomenon of unidentified origin has caused the reanimation of the dead who prey on human flesh. Uh, David M.G., Ken Forey, Scott Reininger, and Galen Ross star as survivors of the outbreak who barricade themselves inside a suburban shopping mall amid mass hysteria. Yeah, there are a lot of themes and stuff going on in this movie, and I know we're going to tackle some of that later on in the episode. And I know that we have a lot to talk about as far as like cast and like setting goes. Um, and maybe we'll get into you know our thoughts about you know comparing Night of the Living Dead to Dawn of the Dead. Sure. But until then, everybody, this is Dawn of the Dead. In 1968, George Romero brought us. Night of the Living Dead. It became the classic horror film of its time. Not that room! Not that room! Now, George Romero brings us the most intensely shocking motion picture experience for all times. It gets up and kills. The people it kills get up and kill. This situation must be controlled before it's too late. They are multiplying too rapidly. Dawn. Of the dead. Meet me on the roof at nine o'clock. Get out. I don't believe it. We're going to get out in the chopper. We've got to survive. Somebody's got to survive. They kill for one reason. They kill for food. They eat their victims. Imagine, if you will, that something has gone terribly wrong. Shoot it, man. Now, accept the fact that there's no escaping the horrible consequences. George Romero brings back the dead. Night of the Living Dead has ended. Dawn of the Dead is here. We must not be lulled by the concept that these are our family members or our friends. They are not. They will not respond to such emotions. Operator dead. Post abandoned. 
and they never get out of line. It's everywhere. What the hell is it? Looks like a shopping center, one of those big indoor malls. What are they doing? Why do they come here? Some kind of instinct, memory, what they used to do. This was an important place in their lives. What is it? We've got a war. We have spawned our own savagery. Soon, it will consume us all. It is a horrible, hauntingly accurate vision of the mindless excesses of a society gone mad. They must be destroyed on sight! When there is no more room in hell, the dead will walk the earth. We are down to the line, folks. We are down to the line. Dawn of the Dead. A television TV news studio is chaotic. They are three weeks into a national crisis where a mysterious phenomenon is reanimating recently deceased humans as flesh-eating zombies. Francine, played by Galen Ross, is taking a quick, much-needed rest, but is awoken by a co-worker to help solve a problem. The list of safety shelters displayed on TVs for the public is dangerously out of date. Francine orders the shelter to be taken off the air until they can find correct ones, but she's rebuffed by the station manager who wants them on air at all times lest people in the area start to tune out of the broadcast. As station employees begin to abandon their posts, Francine's boyfriend Stephen, played by David M.G., tells her of a plan to take the station's traffic helicopter and search for safety. Meanwhile, across the city, SWAT teams are preparing for a raid on a housing project harboring a wanted criminal. One SWAT officer, Roger, played by Scott Reininger, witnesses one of his fellow officers slowly become racially unhinged, and another panics and becomes fearful for his life. As the officers raid the building, the racist lunatic begins killing everyone that he sees. An officer from another unit kills the racist, and the teams begin to secure the building. But it is clear that the tenants are not following the martial law of delivering all of their dead to National Guardsmen, as the building is full of zombies. Roger escapes to the basement to take a minute, but just a minute. (laughs) But he's interrupted by the officer who shot the racist. I thought you did that on purpose, so I just added, but just a minute. I mean, I did. I didn't see that you added it, though. It's I just left that part off. I didn't. I didn't add the entire fucking quote. <laughs> I was like, you need to take a minute, just a minute. <laughs> Continue. After realizing that Roger means no threat, the officer Peter, played by Ken Forey, reveals himself, and the two assist in the clearing of the basement of the living dead. The basement of the living dead. That sounds like another. <laughs> <silent>. <laughs> yeah. We should make that one. Continue on. Oh my god. Basement of the Living Dead. It's a, it's a mini-sode from the first movie. <laughs> Roger tells Peter that his friend has a helicopter and invites him to join in their escape. The two rendezvous with Fran and Steven, and the four flee in the helicopter from the city. The group has some close calls while stopping for fuel, but eventually they spot a large shopping mall. They land on the roof and find a way inside to a small apartment-type area above the mall. Peter and Roger venture down into the mall and find the place deserted of humans but filled with the living dead. They head to JCPenney's and quickly realize that they could sustain themselves in the mall during the crisis. They must rescue Stephen, who also came down to explore, and the three return to the apartment with radios, TVs, food, and other supplies, where Roger and Peter learn from Stephen that Fran is pregnant. 
Fran objects to staying at the mall and votes that they head to Canada. As she is outvoted, the men form a plan to block off the mall's entrances, but she lays down some laws. She will not be a den mother, she will be treated equally, and she wants to learn to fly the helicopter. Near the mall is a shipping yard with several trucks and trailers, and they plan to use them to block off the mall's entrances from the dead. Stephen flies them to the yard, and Roger hotwires the trucks for them to drive to the mall. Everything is going well, and Roger starts to get very cocky, and after surviving a very close call with a zombie, becomes reckless. Roger forgets his supply pack back in the truck, and Peter chastises him, telling him to keep his head on straight. While retrieving his pack, Roger is bitten by zombies in the leg and arm. Roger and Peter finish the job, but Roger knows that his fate is sealed. The group kills the remaining zombies in the mall and begin to live a hedonistic lifestyle with all of the goods available to them, and they furnish their apartment with the mall's many commodities. Peter begins to build a makeshift wall to disguise the entrance to their apartment should any looters or gangs happen into the mall. But during construction, Roger begins to get worse, as the treatment the group is providing him fails to save his life or keep him comfortable. Roger begs Peter to kill him if he is reanimated, but only after he comes back. As Roger dies, Peter keeps watch over his corpse and shoots him after he returns to life. They bury Roger in one of the mall's flower beds. The remaining three live on in the mall, but seem to be growing bored with all the abundance around them. Fran turns down a marriage proposal from Stephen, and Peter continues to mourn the loss of Roger. Months pass, and Fran is now showing her pregnancy. Emergency broadcasts cease, and Fran, again, presses the group to leave. Supplies are loaded into the helicopter, and Fran gets her flying lessons. A nomadic gang of bikers spots the helicopter on the mall's roof. They radio the group, but decide to storm the mall after getting no response. Peter and Steven spring into action. They venture down to close the gates around the stores, but the gang destroys the barriers, allowing hundreds of zombies into the mall. Steven becomes enraged by the looting bikers and begins shooting at them, causing a battle. Steven retreats to an elevator shaft, but is shot by the bikers. He climbs down into the elevator, but is bitten by zombies in the process. Meanwhile, Peter successfully kills several bikers, but the zombies are doing a much better job with them than he ever could. Many of the bikers are eaten, and the rest flee with their stolen goods. Peter is unsuccessful at reaching Stephen on the radio, and returns to Fran, explaining that he may be alive because he heard his gun. The two wait for his arrival, but Fran encourages Peter to leave, which he declines. A reanimated Stephen leaves the elevator and, acting on his memories, destroys the fake wall and leads a horde of zombies to the apartment. Peter shoots Stephen as Fran climbs to the roof in the waiting helicopter. Peter retreats to a bedroom and locks himself inside while the zombies ravage the apartment and begin to climb to the roof. He contemplates suicide, but when the zombies burst in, has a change of heart and begins to fight them. He fights his way to the roof where Fran is beginning to take off. He safely makes it to the helicopter and the two fly off into the unknown as an army of zombies invade and reclaim them all. The end. Bum, bum, bum. That's a, I mean, I, I say this every time I record, you know, I mean, that's a lot going on in the movie and, um, but it's actually fairly linear, right? I mean, it's, yeah. it's there's not much jumping around. It's we're pretty focused on this ensemble. And it seems like, I mean, when you read the synopsis, it actually sounds like a lot more going on than I feel when watching this movie sometimes, you know, yeah. like I, I love it. I really do. But let's face it. I mean, like in some, some places it's kind of a slog. So 
Yeah, I could I could agree with that maybe in a couple of moments, but it does, you know, quickly regain its pacing. You know, it's good about that, which is why it's a classic part of the reason, at least. Agreed. So uh, Dawn of the Dead premiered at Cannes in 1978, and in September, later the same year, it was released in Italy. Its American release started in New York City on April 20th, 1979. Dawn of the Dead had received several recuts and re-edits during its early stages. Dario Argento, of all people, who played a pivotal role in its production, retained the rights to edit the film for Europe, while Romero controlled the edits for English-speaking markets. Distributors and censors caused further cuts to the film because several times it was rated like X or X plus or, or things like that, right? That's right, yeah. So Romero had hastily edited a 139-minute version of the film. Now it's known as the extended or director's cut for Cannes. Um, he later pared it down to a 127-minute release for American theaters. This version received the dreaded X rating due to its graphic violence, and uh, fearing this would limit the commercial success of the movie, the filmmakers decided to release it as unrated. The film was denied a rating twice in Australia, once in 1978, later in 1979, Ultimately, it was finally given a rating of R18+, and was released there in 1980. The film was banned in Queensland until 1986. Wow. Yeah. Dario Argento's version clocks in at about 119 minutes, so a little bit shorter. It uh, included changes, such as a more music from Goblin per, you know, his love of Goblin and yeah, right. you know, using them for Suspiria and all that. Uh, removal of some uh, expository scenes and has a faster pace. There are, however, extra lines of dialogue and gore shots that are not in either Romero version. And I would expect nothing less from Dario Argento, really. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Dawn of the Dead performed well thanks to both commercial advertising and word of mouth. Ad campaigns and posters declared the film the most intensely shocking motion picture experience of all times. It earned nearly a million dollars in its opening weekend, with a total domestic gross of $5 million. Internationally, though, it was a huge success, making the worldwide box office $55 million against a budget of only $1.5 million. So, yeah, huge hit. Big return. Yep. Oh, yeah. So Dawn of the Dead holds a 93% rating on Rotten Tomatoes with an audience score of 90%, so pretty even. The site's consensus reads, One of the most compelling and entertaining zombie films ever made, Dawn of the Dead blends pure horror and gore with social commentary on material society. I like to include Roger Ebert's thoughts whenever we talk about reception, because I mean, like, I'm always so flabbergasted at movies that he likes and dislikes, because when we talked about Night of the Living Dead, it seemed to me that he was, like, really leaning toward a negative review of that movie. And I'm sure that over time he changed his mind, but initially it it didn't seem very good. Uh, For this one though, he gave the film four out of four stars and proclaimed it one of the best horror movies ever made while conceding that the movie was gruesome, sickening, disgusting, violent, brutal, and appalling. He added that nobody ever said that art had to be in good taste. It's a weird thing to say. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I feel like it's, it's, good taste it just happens to incidentally have all of these gruesome sickening disgusting violent brutal and appalling things in it and i would happen to agree with you and i think a lot of horror fans would say the same thing right you know i although the camera does kind of lean into some of those things you yeah. can say. <laughs> i'm sure we'll get to that later on too i'm sure but uh similar to night of the living dead some critical reviewers were not into the gory effects Janet Maslin of the New York Times was particularly displeased with the amounts of gore and violence. She said she walked out after the first 15 minutes due to a pet peeve about flesh-eating zombies who never stop snacking. I'm sorry, reviewers and critics, (laughs) 
but you're not allowed to publish your thoughts on a movie that you haven't fucking seen. So <laughs> shut your mouth, Karen. Egg. Exactly. I swear to God. She was like, why well, I left. I left after 15 minutes. <laughs> and so I give this movie zero out of four stars. I don't know. And whose pet peeve is that? Like, my biggest pet peeve is flesh-eating zombies that never stop snacking. I don't, we don't understand. Someone should take her reviewer card away. Seriously. Um, in 2008, Dawn of the Dead was chosen by Empire Magazine as one of the 500 greatest movies of all time, along with Night of the Living Dead. So, Agreed. Yeah. Do you know if the remake made that list? <clears throat> um, Would they be imagining, so. I guess? I seriously doubt it. Yeah. Well, let's dive into like just walking through this movie, right? Let's just kind of dive into some of these scenes, starting with the beginning. I love how this movie starts, like right in the thick of it with the news agency. It's like, like I feel like it's a microcosm, right? Showing how like these institutions are desperately holding on to control, but are quickly breaking down despite great effort on the people that are more heroic and brave and know their uh, priorities. Like, let's get this off the screen so we can show the proper safety shelters that haven't been compromised. But the, you know, there's some people still there that are like, no, no, we need ratings. You know, know, so there's that, that conflict there with, you know, just humanities, you know, not just, you know, racial lines or political lines, but just prior, you know, the lines of priority that people have, you know, and so just quickly showing in this microcosm what's happening to society. And I, I love that there's this ever present dialogue in the background of, you know, the science versus, you know, the, the panic, you know, that's just kind of seeded throughout the movie and it's happening right there, filmed right there. So, and I think it's a really logical choice to start the movie this way because, I mean, if, if we're, we're taking this like maybe three weeks after the events of Night of the Living Dead, right? And in that particular movie, they were glued to the television to see what was going on, right? And we all know, I mean, like, he he had a message in that particular movie, and he has messages in this one, and they change because they were you know filmed in different time periods, obviously. But I think that in the late seventies and well on into the eighties, the idea of like ratings as far as newscast goes is like pretty high on producers' minds, and less about like reporting the actual news. And yeah, and it shows kind of these absurdist kind of points of view in a way. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, I think. What boggles me more than just like the the news studio aspect of the beginning is the the SWAT aspect, right? Yes. So yeah, and, and that's a whole thing about like the racism going on, right? At the same time, I feel like that's just like a, a little bit. It's it's less than the major social commentary, but it does kind of zoom in on that a little bit. Um, and I did notice that there's a little bit of brown face going on, like <laughs> oh, people God. playing Hispanic. Yeah. Apparently, they couldn't find anyone. <laughs> you know, to do this back then. But, um, you know, they, uh, the whole thing was kind of about killing the fucking racist, crazy person. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, while seeing at the same time that the people hardest hit were the people in the projects, you know, the people that, you know, didn't have that defense and like these people were coming in just, you know, I, I don't know who was killing them faster, the zombies or the or the the Fuck crazy cops, racist right? cops, you know? What what struck me so weird about that opening, even as like a teenager, I, I saw this movie pretty early on in my life because my, my parents like it. And it was sort of like playing in the background when I was a very young kid and I, I you know, caught pieces of it and eventually watched the entire thing when I was, you know, early mm-hmm. teenager. And um 
the thought that like the cops are there to essentially like nab a criminal when there's so much shit going on with zombies and i'm like okay we're talking about priorities in a new studio yeah, i never quite you know? understood like, that yeah me either yeah it makes no sense to me i'm like why are you there to arrest somebody when there are zombies in the streets below you you're on this roof w- waiting to get someone and they're like people are dying and like yeah. en masse I mean, it's so so stupid it's like to the, me. But well, it's like I mean, there's different parts of society. It's like this death rattle of all these institutions trying to like move forward and have a sense of normalcy. But at the same time, like you know, it was the you know the the military orders, the martial law that was you know you'd have to get rid of your dead, you know, versus like they're still trying to this other uh, you know agency is trying to like kill the bad guy, right? Who was basically being right. housed there. So it's like you know, it's like saying. Well, the coronavirus is basically going to kill everyone, but we're we're you know because of that we're not going to go after Osama bin Laden or something. It's like no, that's still going to happen, you know. But it's like they just don't understand how close to the end they are with all of these institutions unraveling, you know. And I'm really glad that they had these scenes, right? I think that it it sets up that that tenement building very very well, <clears throat> and I'm glad that we got to see what's going on inside of it because it gives us the, like the sort of last bits of humanity that we get to see in this movie outside of the group of survivors that we deal with for the next two yeah. hours, you know. Um, not to make light of it really, cause I know a lot of tragic things are happening, but one of my favorite lines from Dawn of the Dead happens during that raid of that building when the prisoner of the prisoners, when the criminals finally decide to bust out of the doors on the roof, the first one that comes out says, Oh Jesus Christ, there's a thousand fucking pigs. Just like, every fucking time I hear that, I just like die laughing. There's a lot of good one liners in this movie. And of course that there's head explosion, humor, yeah. you know, thanks. Oh my God. Yes. Thanks Tom Savini for that. <laughs> for real. And I feel like that was like, it was a famous effect, right? Because it was the first time you see something like that straight up in your face on screen, I believe. And that's why it got, you know, this is one of the big reasons the, the film got rated the way it did. And I think it, I mean, it really sets a precedent as to what we're going to see for the rest of the movie, you know, because that is a famous, famous scene. And I mean, I love to see a good head, head explosion in a horror movie. Yep. And you know, <laughs> it's, it's almost like un, un, untoppable, but uh, the movie goes on to have some really, really gory moments that we will yeah. get to. Mm-hmm. So our next stop is, of course, the mall. And when they fly the helicopter over the mall and are looking at the zombies like in and around it, there's this great moment where Fran asks, why did they come here? And Peter says, of course, he's the wisest character, I think, in the whole movie. Yeah. You know, he's always this font of, of you know, wisdom, fount of wisdom. And um, he says some sort of instinct of what they used to do. This was an important place in their lives. How sad is that? <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Well, I mean, is it still today, though? Do you think the mall is still an important place to people? No, like, I feel like a, like the updated version of this is just people walking around randomly, like, in circles, just playing with their phones. I don't think the zombies would even eat anyone because they're all just looking at their phones, like, tapping it, like, nonsensically. And I just feel like that's probably what the version of this of this movie would be in 2020. Just mindlessly ordering things off Amazon, you know, right? Or pressing their fucking refill button, you know, whatever it's called. You dash. Amazon is experiencing operation failure because they cannot... <laughs> They cannot ascertain the difference between the living dead orders and the living orders. 
<laughs> I do love the fact that when they're flying over that mall, they have to sort of like ask what it is at some point. They're like, what is that? And I was like, oh, it's one of those big indoor shopping malls, right? Yeah. And it wasn't so many years after the release of this movie that mall sort of exploded mm-hmm. and was an important part to everyone's life. And I think yeah. that you and I, at the age that we are now, have seen like the rise and decline of the mall, yeah. right? Sure. So. I mean, as many death knells that are tolling in this movie, I mean, we've seen one for one of the main, I would say, character of the movie. I would call the mall a character. No, the, yeah, the malls, so. malls have been around for a few years, but, you know, in certain, you know, places versus just rife everywhere across America like they would be in the 80s and 90s, right? And those were, that was the heyday of the mall, the rise and fall, of course. I would say the height of the mall was probably in the late 90s, right? Yeah, well, yeah, I would say so. Like, right around the time that I was a teenager, you know, and I spent a lot of time in a mall, mm-hmm. like, every week. Mall rats. Yeah, I mean, hey, I liked that movie a lot, too. But this particular mall is fantastic. <laughs> Nothing like the malls of my youth. I mean, there were so many things in this mall, and I was just like, a gun store? A gourmet food store? A bank? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, and that mall, you know, it, a lot of those stores were legit in that mall, of course, uh, with a note of being that gun store was not actually in that mall. They filmed that separately. It was just too convenient. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, there was not a gun store in that mall. <laughs> Only in Texas would you find a good store mall. <laughs> well, I've seen weapon stores like like swords and like crossbows and weird shit like that in Texas malls, but I've never seen a gun a gun store in a mall in Texas. I'm surprised, honestly. But, yeah, but I've, I feel like that was a plot point. You know, they needed the guns, they needed the ammunition, and it was just that symbol of the mall being this this you know spark of hope. You know, that was uh, that's really interesting, and I think we'll get back into that because it's kind of a more thematic. Um, point of this movie but um, I love the wacky music that plays while they're cleaning up the mall of zombies you know it's just and of course it returns in the credits you know yeah that's one of the things that I kind of dislike about the movie it makes me laugh when I hear it you know but I and there must be some sort of reason for that I just never wrap my head around it every time I've seen this movie the whole like dun 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 you know I mean it's just like it's so ill-fitting, but I guess, I mean, that's the point, because that's what you would hear at a mall exactly. at that particular time period. Exactly. Yeah. And then, you know, how, you know, war is hell until it's not, right? <laughs> yeah. And yeah. and that's when they just have to, like, adapt, you know, and they just make it, they almost gamify it, you know, and it's, uh, it's kind of hard to watch, but also entertaining at the same time. So I felt like that was, um, I personally feel like that was kind of a stroke of genius in a way. You know, to see that kind of dark humor where they're just, they have to kind of adapt or they just go into this level of insanity in their own minds and can't deal. Can you imagine how maddening it would be to hear that music like all the time? If they always had the power and stuff going and you're trying to sleep upstairs in that little apartment. Oh my God, I would shoot myself for that. Zombies are now drown myself in a fountain. Well, then we get the trucks, right? And oh. there was one line that I really loved. We got this, man. We got this by the ass. <laughs> <laughs> but for me, like, one of my favorite characters is Roger. And this is, you know, because he's just so cool and even, although Peter is a little bit more uh, distanced, right? A version mm-hmm. of that character is more, much a little bit more hardcore versus Roger's just so cool. And I don't mean like, you know, Steve McQueen cool. I just mean like he's, 
he keeps everything just very, very calm and he knows what to do and he thinks about situations and he, you know, and that's why I think Roger and Peter are such a good duo. And we'll talk about more of them about them later, but his character here just seems to abrupt. So, you know, change so abruptly, right. Of all the characters, this was like the most abrupt to me for him to die. It's like his, his personality changes from careful to to carefree and it gets him killed. It's always been jarring to me because he was just such this way, you know, that you could kind of rely on. And then he just gets cocky all of a sudden in this one scene and it just gets him killed. I don't know. I mean, I, I kind of I kind of buy into that change in character, especially at that particular time, because they have gone through so many things over the course of the movie up to that particular point, And they seem to be doing well. They luck into everything, right? They find some gas tanks to refill their helicopter, to make it to the mall. They land in the mall and find a way to sustain life with each other. And the more that they luck into things and things seem to be going well for them, I think that you would get a little cocky and you're like, you know what? I got this. Like there may be a crisis going on in the rest of the world, but here we are doing just fine and nothing can harm me. You know, yeah, I, just, I can't say that I haven't felt that way myself. One you know? thing that I really liked about, you know, like Peter, for instance, is that there's almost like an Arthur or the story. There's almost like an Arthur C. Clarkian perspective to the characters like dedicated professional right there's not a lot of extra drama going on they know their role they know what they're supposed to do and i felt like peter and roger were that and when roger just abandons that and just goes a little crazy you know it's it's just like watching your uh or watching a hero kind of fail you know and it's hard to watch but it was done purposefully i mean uh peter is literally saying to him you know, hanging a lantern on it was to get your head on straight, man. Like what's going on with you, you know, but that's, uh, that's the way of things. And every time I watch this movie and I I know what's going to happen, you know, I know he's going to be bitten. And every time that he is like, it's so shocking to me still, like he's a very likable character. And I mean, I I literally gasp every time I see it, Yeah, you know, but before he dies, they do the final securing of the mall. Right. And they're playing in and looting, the the mall and it's pretty joyous right they finally have their space and they're they're able to like go and just kind of shop around and kind of start that hedonistic this is everything that we have fought and won and it gives them this this sense of security and you know a sense of a hopeful future especially for fran who's basically going to have a baby right yeah and uh this is also when peter says you know when they're kind of talking about it and looking at the zombies um when there's no more room in hell, the dead will walk the earth. Right. And I mean, I think that everyone remembers that line a lot out of anything in this movie. I think that that sticks with it. I'm sure that it's been on posters and Mm -hmm. like DVD copies since then, you know, but yeah, they used it in the next movie too. It's so very ominous. Um, I will say that during the whole cleanup process, one of the things that really pisses me off to no end, like literally every time I see it is when they have all the zombies are dead and they're trying to figure out what they're going to do with them. They're like, this place is going to get real funky, you know? And so they stack them up in a walk-in freezer filled with perfectly good food. I'm like, yeah, I noticed what that the too. fuck are you doing? There's a giant like <laughs> slab of steak there, you know, yes! or something. And they're just like, like meat hanging. And they're like putting the zombies in. I'm like, well, y'all are 
stupid. Well, if you think about it, though, like they could have moved that meat, but at the same time, they do kind of look at everything that they have. And I feel like that's maybe just one of many, many walk in freezers in that mall. And just one of many, like maybe it's, you know, the fucking McDonald's walk in freezer and they still have like the Applebee's. I don't know. You know, (laughs) they have. They could have picked like one store. I mean, like I know I saw a limited in the background where they're walking around, like just put them in the limited. Y'all need those clothes. Just yeah. put them in the JCPenney. No one walks in there anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Sad, but true. So then we've got the death of Roger, which I feel like is a really classic scene of him like yes. sitting up in bed, um, yeah, you know, yeah, as the yeah. newborn zombie. But what's also happening at that same time is that uh, Fran and Steven, I guess, are watching this kind of the final broadcast of humanity on TV with this chaotic and deteriorated debate on whether to remain logical or fall into panic. Fran says, you know, watching this, she goes, it's, it's really all over, isn't it? You know, meaning society, it's just over. And as Roger is, uh, and at the same time, Roger is shot in the head in the next room by Peter. Right. And so it's this really poignant moment where you can feel everything kind of turning. Right. And uh, that's where this this false sense of hope just kind of starts to get shattered because at that point, the ravagers arrive, right? The, motor- yeah. the motorcycle gang, mm-hmm. uh, and the the unraveling essentially of everything. Well, and to me, like I, I love this movie so much. Like right up until this point, to me, it's kind of like the the point where the movie takes a turn for the ridiculous. <laughs> you know, it's like George A. Romero sort of like beating us over the head with things. You know. But I mean, it's it's a means to an end for the movie, and we get to experience some of the best like gore move, gore moments like ever shot. Yeah, to me. Yeah, and this is it. Yeah, because the zombies can go wholesale, right? Because yeah. the ravagers, the motorcycle gang, they basically let everyone in, and I'm just like, damn it! It's like you know it was likely, but not exactly expected to lose everything, not to the zombies, but to fellow man. Thanks again, yeah. Tom Savini, <laughs> who plays, of course, the lead motorcycle gang guy, right? He's like the leader. Mm-hmm. And his swarthiest best role. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, so everything just like falls apart in a matter of moments, you know? And it's just like everything that they have built and everything that they were holding on to, even though it seemed like they were starting to sort of become disillusioned with everything that they had. I mean, I kind of imagine that they wouldn't have stayed there the entire time anyway, yeah. whether or not these ravagers have come in. It'd be too to good to it, pass up all of that yeah. food, all of that resource. To see it fall so quickly, though, is just like a, a real slap in the face. And I can see why Steven got so enraged that he started the, the battle that ensued. Yeah. So. But the eating of the people and the entrails and the meat the zombies are eating right off their victims in these scenes are still gross and hard to watch sometimes. (laughs) For real. I don't know. I mean, because they were doing very similar things in Night of the Living Dead. But I think there's a a sharp contrast between watching something in black and white and watching something in color. And not only color, but like they were going for like a comic book vibrancy on this film, right? So everything's kind of like super saturated, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's just gross. I mean, and there are other parts in the movie that I find really gross, too, that I have to look away from or sort of like make my stomach churn. You know, that scene in the tenement building where that woman runs to her reanimated husband and she's like, oh, my God, you know, my husband. And he like takes a huge fucking chunk out of her shoulder. I'm just like every time like, oh, God, (laughs) like like, I can't look away fast enough. Yeah. Practical effects, man. 
still gotta love them. Yeah. <laughs> and then we've got, you know, the death of Steven in the elevator from both the zombies and of course the the people that he started a fight with, essentially. Um that scene has yeah. forever changed my life. Like for real. <laughs> Opening I, the elevator doors. Yeah, every time. I mean, I, I have to take an elevator at work every single day. And every time the doors open, I'm just ready for zombies to run out at me. This is how much this movie is like influenced to my brain, mm. you know? Yeah, it's yeah. classic. I, there's no other way in my office building but to go up several escalators and an elevator. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, this movie, I think of it, you know, sliding down that escalator, going up the elevators, like, and I'm in a mall. That's where I am. <laughs> <laughs> My office building is literally on top of uh, like a high scale mall. I will give you $25 if one day you slide down the middle of the escalator and go like, wee, (laughs) please do that for me. Um, I, do you feel as sad about the death of Steven as you do about Roger? No. Yeah. I don't either. Yeah. Steven is an interesting character and I think we'll, we'll get more into the specifics of of those a little bit later, but yeah, I didn't, I didn't feel as bad. You know, you feel bad for him, but it's not Mm -hmm. tragic like it is, you know, in other sense, but I would have been more worried for the group if Fran had not decided to say, you know, Hey, you need to teach me how to fly a helicopter, not just to give her some, you know, agency, but also because of this, the logic of if something happened to Steven, they'd be grounded. No one else. She's the only one who says that, you know, I mean, yeah. Yeah. I know we have some character comments coming up. So, um, so after Steven dies in the elevator, we have the escape of Fran and Peter, which is an amazing like closing scene. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, you don't think that Peter's going to make it, you know, and he has to make a choice to do that. Right. It's not just as simple or cut and dry as, you know, whether he makes it through the zombies or not. He has to make a choice whether he wants to continue to fight, you know, because yeah. there's a sense at this point in the, of the film, you know, an overbearing sense of ine- inevitability. Right. And you and just they, have to decide. They have no idea. They, they don't have no idea what's going to happen to them. You know, they, mm-hmm. they know they don't have much fuel. They don't know what's beyond the horizon really. And it's just a, a just him climbing up to that roof and trying to get into the helicopter with the sort of heroic music playing in the background, you know, is a really like seminal moment in movies for me. It's yeah. just like, if, if I'm put into a position like this, you know, if there's some sort of apocalypse like that, do I decide to like lay down and die or do I fight for my own life and just go off into the unknown? And yeah, I like it. I was, uh, <laughs> I was actually watching clips of Battlestar Galactica because we had talked in our last Shading the Flames about the expanse. And yeah. I was just like, I was like going back to Battlestar Galactica and I'm like, you know, is it just as good as I remember? Can I compare it? You know, I was watching all these clips and I'm like, oh my God, yes. Battlestar was so special, you know? And I just, I, I watched a quote from Starbuck and I guess they're getting invaded by the Cylons on the planet. They decided to kind of like stay on like halfway through the series or whatever. And they're like, what are we going to do now? And she's like, fight. We do what we always do. We fight until we can't. And that's basically what Peter has decided to do here. Fight until yep. he can't anymore. And it's a, it's you can see that decision, you know, on his face, and and he does it, and they escape into the unknown. And I I love this ending, you know, I and I but I also love the ending of Night of the Living Dead. But they're two very different endings to movies, right? One is very nihilistic and yeah. bleak, and the other one is incredibly hopeful. And but I, also bleak. <laughs> but also bleak. Yeah, I mean, because there's no. They're, they're, they're not going to survive. I think we know this. We can tell. But yeah. at least the last times that we see Fran and Peter, they're at least going off to live their lives and fight their fight. 
you can make up your own mind as to what happens to them, you know? And, and if you want to have a happier ending, then just think they're probably still alive today in the zombie apocalypse. And I don't know that that matters, right? Because it's not, I feel like ultimately it's not about the journey of them surviving. It's the journey of them choosing to try to survive, right? Yeah. Despite everything. Continuing to slap them down. That's very eloquently put. I like that very much. Why, thank you. Yeah. And then, of course, we get the credits with the music. <laughs> so any deep thoughts you had were immediately shattered. <laughs> exactly. And it starts with such fanfare. They're like, places in the mall. Like, just showing different like exhibits and things they had. I'm like, this is great. I love it. But let's like transition just from that ending, that hopeful ending, to the actual original or alternate ending, right? Yeah. So according to the original screenplay, Peter and Francine were to kill themselves. Peter by shooting himself and Fran by sticking her head into the path of the rotating uh, helicopter blades. My God. So the ending what credits a- would run over a shot of the helicopter blades turning until the engine winds down, implying that the two would not have really gotten far anyway had they chosen to escape so during production it was decided to change the ending of the film and romero uh up until he died was adamant that it was never shot although there's some com- kind of competing arguments about that <laughs> i um i kind of would like to see that just to see the special effects right but as an ending to the story i think that's terrible well it's interesting that you mentioned the effects because much of the lead-in to the two suicides remains in the film as francine learns about the uh or leans out of the helicopter upon seeing the zombies approach and Peter puts a gun to his head, ready to shoot himself. Um, an additional scene showing a zombie having the top of its head cut off by the helicopter oh, blades, yeah. thus foreshadowing Francine's suicide was included early in the film at the, when they're trying to get gas early. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, Romero has stated that the original ending was scrapped before being shot. Uh, although behind the scenes photos show the original uh, version was at least tested. So the head appliance made for France, uh, France suicide, was instead used in the opening SWAT raid made to resemble an African-American male and blown apart by a shotgun blast. (laughs) So it's actually her mock-up of her head was used in that that famous exploding head scene. That's such a bleak ending, you know? And I I mean, again, though, we just talked about Night of the Living Dead and and its bleak ending, so it would would remain in Romero's, like, path of the movies to, to have something equally as bleak, but... Again, well, I feel like it's his original message of like, this is the way society is and it's inevitable, you know, and but I do like the way it was changed. I like the the theatrical ending better personally yeah. by far just because it also kind of hammers home like it's your choice. Like, what do you think happens next? Regardless of inevitability, what is your choice? You know, and I think that's the the more poignant ending, despite it being more positive or less positive. Well, and I guess, I mean, the alternate ending would also be a choice, you know? I mean, she would choose to stick her head in those fucking blades, you know? But <laughs> That seems a little <laughs> over the top. I can't imagine that scene. <laughs> Where she's like, nope. And she just like <laughs> lifts up and her head explodes like a cat. I mean, I realize that getting torn apart by zombies is probably not the best way to die, but uh, I kind of don't want my head chopped up by a helicopter blade either. I don't know. It's terrible. Although, I mean, yeah. So if if that like footage exists, I mean, I I guess I'd kind of like to see it. I just don't don't like the way that ends the story. Yeah. Personally. So let's get into some of the themes, right? So I feel like there's a slight theme of racism that's kind of touched on. But of course, mainly, I think the theme is is to kind of... um, have some social commentary on consumerism. Oh yeah. But to me, there's also this 
this nod to like the fragility of our institutions, which is interesting now and is extremely poignant to me just due to like the recent news with the coronavirus and how the, the CDC has kind of failed to you know, keep this from the United States, how we've just gotten our first death over in Seattle, mm-hmm. um, you know, and how they say, we don't know, you know, we don't know where it's going to be. This isn't over yet. We've got some lies and weirdness within the administration. I think just most recently, uh, Trump has blamed the Democrats as the coronavirus is like their most yes. recent hoax or something. And I just like, read that article, yeah. you know, even in the face of something like this, and this is not like, you know, apocalypse level virus, you know, but it's yeah. just, <laughs> it's just like, you know, you can see how this might play out, you know, in our society today, you know, with the institutions that we we trust, you know, and the government that we expect to be honest and not just play the normal politics. But you know what? It shows that Dawn of the Dead was extremely realistic in some of these ways, you know, which is sad. And I completely agree. And I, I think the same applies to a lot of zombie movies. I think if done well, it's the, the, the perfect like subgenre of horror to really get a like a societal point across you know i think it's super easy to to throw a lot of themes into a zombie movie because the monsters are essentially us you know on either of the spectrum either from zombies or from other living humans and i think that like romero's zombie films are sort of rife with themes and whatever he wants to talk about in that particular one uh there, there is some racism going on in this movie, aside from just that beginning segment. There's like a point in the helicopter ride where Fran is talking to Peter and she asks if he like leaves anyone behind, right? And he's like, yeah, two brothers. And she's like, are they real brothers or street brothers? You know, and he sort of gives her a look and he's like, both, you know? And like, so I mean, <laughs> there's, there's some definite racial themes going yeah, on in this movie. Definitely. Uh, not to go back again, but uh, I just saw today, I think that like the head administrator that Trump has put in charge of like the and not Pence, but like the, the person in the administration kind of in charge of like looking at everything for the coronavirus and like making a plan for the government or whatever. And it's like a lot of people think the government or, or these institutions like this monolithic can do no wrong. Very, you know, but the guy's on Twitter going, is the map for the coronavirus down for anyone else? And I'm just like, holy <laughs> shit. <laughs> we don't stand a fucking chance. Really? I mean, come on. <laughs> we were just, my husband and I were talking about this today. I was just like, yeah, I've read the stand. I know how all this happens. You know what I mean? I was like, half the population dies off and the rest of us have to choose between good and evil and fight to the death. <laughs> But ultimately, what the coronavirus, what the coronavirus will bring to me, is much cheaper cruise prices, and I mean, well, at the end yeah, of the day, right? Well, someone else was like posted <laughs> on Facebook that I saw. They're like, "There's nothing more American than, uh, you know, go, trying to go get tested for the coronavirus and being sent a, a bill for fifteen hundred dollars." You know, <laughs> yeah, Jesus Christ, right? <laughs> So it's just like, yeah, a lot of people think, you know, these institutions are monolithic and, and untouchable. But you know what? It's more like instead of this big monolithic tower, it's more like a big tower of Jenga. <laughs> you know, it's poking. <laughs> hoping it's going to come crashing down. Yeah. And everyone's taking their fucking turn. Uh, I also saw a meme, too. I mean, cut this out if you want to. But it said something like, I can't wait to battle the coronavirus when the number one way to pay for medical bills in America is GoFundMe. <laughs> so just like, shit. Someone's comment actually was... Uh, the best way to get tested for coronavirus is to cough in a, in a rich person's face have them go, <laughs> and have them go to their expensive health care and see if they have it or not. 
<laughs> and that, I mean, that's so true. And it's so true of, of zombie movies. I think the things that we're talking about right now in our real life can apply to these, these movies, right? I mean, it's no secret that I love zombie movies and further on down the line in this Romero series, we're going to be talking about themes of like rich versus poor class warfare. It shows up squarely in land of the dead. Oh, definitely. Like, and how the politics yeah. kind of play into this, you know, we have this, we keep having this debate, especially right now with like the democratic, uh, you know, super Tuesday is right around the corner. Right. And yeah, We've got everyone talking about universal healthcare again, and and like the one of the main arguments against it is like, oh, we'll just have to, you know, these, you know, emergency rooms and doctors' offices full of people, and I'm like, well, that's the point, right? Like, mm-hmm. you want that to happen to a certain extent. Everything else is logistics that we can make better, you know, as most other Western countries can or have or try to do, but. You know, when you've got people that can't go to the doctor and can't know they can't afford to, you've got a real problem systemically with like the CDC. Like you can't get people in to get tested because they can't afford it and don't want to. And that's the culture behind healthcare in this country. You know, that's a huge problem. It's a huge hole in the wall, you know, and the CDC has to work with that. It's almost not their fault just because of the politics behind it. But I digress. Huh? I'm going to get off my soapbox. <laughs> But you're absolutely right. And we are all doomed. Doomed. <laughs> so, there, there's my my nihilistic standpoint on like America today. But I do love the hope, you know, that is introduced by the mall. Like the idea that you could survive with everything you need and start a new life with a with a bit of human ingenuity, right? Isolated from the horror that surrounds you. But some of the best horror in this film, or at least the feeling of horror, you know, comes from the utter destruction of that hope, the dismantling of it caused by, you know, not necessarily by the zombies, but by fellow man, you know, that's just exactly what we've been talking about. A lot of this movie is very bleak, right? I don't think it's near as bleak as its predecessor because there are some rays of hope in this movie that are not seen in Night of the Living Dead, right? And I mean, I have to applaud Romero too for making this movie a little bit more humorous than the earlier film, right? So it, it sort of like helps you feel those senses of hope in the movie. If you can stop and laugh at what's going on or laugh about some of the score or whatever, you know, it sort of leads you to, to, to hope yourself that things are going to turn out fine for the people that we're watching on screen. Yeah. Right. And in fact, let's talk about some of those people. We've got four kind of, I wouldn't even say archetypes because they're, they're really whole interesting people starting with Fran or Francine. Right. Uh, I feel like she's like one of the smartest, but also kind of the most tragic, you know, having to do with her pregnancy. Right. And I think that her pregnancy adds like a touch of realism to the movie, you know, because Oftentimes, when you think about the zombie apocalypse in film or television, you don't stop to think about the people who are pregnant or those who become pregnant, mm-hmm. right? And and what that entails or what you're going to do with that baby or how you're going to raise it and keep it safe, yeah. right? It's hard enough to, you know, keep up with your own life as opposed to something that's completely, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? dependent on you yeah and i feel like they don't really touch on it too much that was uh something that was kind of rife ready for for mining you know into a little bit and they touch on it but i feel like the horror movie that really really kind of deeps you know dives into it a little bit more is um a quiet place oh yeah definitely you know um but yeah and so we don't really know what happens with fran's pregnancy you know because she's still pregnant when she leaves the mall she doesn't want that issue to be an issue 
right yeah. in this movie and she says that flat out she's like i'm not i'm not any different than any of y'all and the thing that strikes me so hard hard in the face about fran is her differences between the lead female character in night of the living dead right yeah. So, I mean, not only did we're given a character, a female character who like just goes off the deep end and becomes hysterical and doesn't, she can't even like pick up a hammer really and help. And in this movie, we have a woman who's like securely taking charge and laying down the law to these people saying like, you know what? I'm different than the three of you, but I'm not going to be treated any differently. I'm not going to be treated like a woman. Yeah. And she, you know, she was used to that kind of in her job. It seemed like she was like the station coordinator of some kind, you know? Yeah. Like she's always been used to like taking charge and, and doing things. And she's not going to let this be any sort of different in her life. Which is actually provides contrast to Steven, who I feel like, of course he's the pilot and her kind of boyfriend and I'm guessing the person that impregnated her. Uh, yeah, I would assume so, since he's very like well, he knows that she's pregnant and wants to marry her. You know, essentially. Yeah, so. and you know, he's just. I feel like he has some confidence issues. You know, some ego issues, and he's effective. You know, and he helps, but he's. You know, I feel like it's his mistake, his ego that kind of helps to turn the story to the worst. You know. Yeah, I would agree with that too, and I think that I mean. <laughs> I think that he's effective and he helps by luck, right? This is sort of a Frank Farmer kind of situation, you know? Like, he wakes up from taking a nap and, like, Peter and Roger have already gone down into the mall. And he's like, well, I want to go, you know? And so he goes down, almost gets himself killed, but lucks into that little manual so they can see the ins and outs, the inner workings of the mall, you know? And, like, he is the worst fucking shot in this movie, (laughs) right? How many times does Roger have to come over and like tap his gun out of the way to show him how to kill a zombie? Yeah. And he just doesn't seem to fucking get it. You know, and they could have easily made him, you know, his value more, you know, not centered around being a pilot or being more technical, but like being a doctor or something like that, you know, going a little bit more archetypal, but they didn't. And he's almost in a way, the closest thing to like an everyman that we have, right? He's not super specialized. They were lucky as hell to have two people that were like military background, you know, essentially with oh, them, yeah. you know, uh, and a woman that's kind of take charge and no nonsense, but he, you know, is kind of the, the guy on the outside of this group in a way, as far as just like not knowing his, his value compared to the others, I feel like, but I might be reading a little bit too much into his character, but you know, there it is. No, I mean, I don't think you are at all. I think, I think everything you said is like, like hitting the nail on the head really about him. Even so far as to say they were lucky to have somebody who could fly a helicopter, but I mean, he teaches somebody else to fly the helicopter. And while you can teach someone to be a SWAT member, you know, whether or not you're good at that particular job is evident in the people that we see. Cause we see these SWAT members early on in the movie who are not as capable as Peter or Roger. Right. Well, that's one of the most important things that anyone does in the movie is kind of passing on their knowledge Right. And so that is his value is his ability to pass that knowledge on to her, because that's just going to be one of the big, if humanity is going to survive from this point forward, you're going to have to have a huge amount of knowledge transfer despite overwhelming obstacles. What do you think about that scene where, um, Stephen and Fran are having dinner cooked by Peter Mm -hmm. and he gives her that ring, which he obviously stole from the mall. Right. (laughs) You know, and so I mean, like, hey, you've lost some sort of value there. You're like, oh, I got you this ring, you know, that I just picked up today. Yeah. Well, what is it going to do? Fucking and- forge one? I mean, like, 
<laughs> but I mean, so I, I, I love that particular scene in that conversation when he gives it to her and the look on her face and she's like, no, take it back. She's like, it, it, it doesn't mean anything right now. And he looks so dejected, yeah. you know, like, like this is what he wants. He's like, here we are in this place. We're all doing well. I'm doing good as a man and we should get married. Yeah. You know, I just, he's the, trying to provide this like sense of normalcy and she's just too, you know, logical to, to yeah. try and buy into this, you know, illusion. And she's the one that's constantly saying like, we shouldn't be here. We need to like move forward and, and try and, you know, meet up with society, you know, somewhere or something. But like, this is this, this whole thing to her is just pretend, you know, and, and she's yeah. right. That's what they are. They're playing house. Yep. So then of course we get to Roger, which to me, like I said, is like, like my favorite in the beginning. And then the, of course the, like the most disappointing by the end, you know, just because he gets so cocky and loses himself to the situation and gets killed for it, you know? And that to me is like the most tragic part of the movie. Like when, when Roger is dying, I am so sad. Like every single time, mm-hmm. you know, cause he, he knows firsthand what's going to be happening to him. And yet he begs, Peter, he's like, kill me if I become a zombie, but don't do it until I turn. Yeah. He's like, I'm going to try. I'm going to try to not do that. And it's just such a tragic portrayal of that particular character. But it adds to the sense of inevitability to the movie. You yeah. know, like no matter what mm-hmm. you want, this is happening, you know? So he, he does and he's shot in the head, you know? And I will, I will say too, when I was a kid at the video store, that was what's on the cover of Dawn of the Dead at the time of that video box was like a progression of him becoming a zombie. Yeah. Right. And so I could, that's always stuck with me. And it, it makes me cry every single time that I see it. <laughs> well, what else it. are you going to say when you're like lying on your deathbed, going to become a zombie? Like, promise me, promise me when I turn, you'll let me eat you. <laughs> what are you going to, you know? <laughs> I mean, that's what I would say. I would just like, just let me go free. I'm peckish. You know, if I become a zombie, just like push me out the back door and let me fend for myself. And if I come back, I mean, like, I'd be like, promise promise that you won't shoot me if i become a zombie really yeah, I, don't <laughs> I don't want to die <laughs> you, you will have died even, even though i'm already dead i guess but still i mean i want to i want to keep going <laughs> i, I want to keep shopping in that i mall. would just as like because i'm just stupidly curious about this sort of thing I'm like what is he gonna do is he gonna like go to the kitchen and start like <laughs> playing with the spatulas over and over as a zombie like <laughs> are you gonna like start like rifling through dvds and just like <laughs> Possibly. I'd be like, you know what? I'm going to watch Buffy for the thousandth time. That's how I spend my zombie life. Like going through the Ultimate Slayer Edition DVDs. I don't know. Seriously, I I feel like I was thinking about that. I was like, what would I do as a zombie? Like, what would my. Because in this movie, it's like you basically start doing what, you know, your, you know, muscle memory, what, right? So I'd probably just like sit at the computer and just like tap the mouse like every five seconds. And I'd be like stuck well, in my apartment for like the next hundred years as a decaying zombie, just tapping my mouse. I wouldn't be a danger to anyone. Well, I'd probably sit at the computer and keep tapping my dick. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> like, oh, Jesus. Could you imagine just like, like hundreds of zombies, like just weirdly masturbating? Like, <laughs> like why is he masturbating? Well, it's instinct. All the 14, 15 year old boys. That's essentially what they're doing. Turn the zombies. This is a really sad question, and I just I'm just curious. If you got bit by a zombie, would you off yourself or would you just wait? 
and die. Oh, I don't know. It depends on the situation. Like, am I around my family or my friends or am I alone? If I was alone, I might just like, yeah, I'm just going to put on Buffy until I turn, you know? (laughs) I mean, for real. Yeah. I I don't want to have to put a loved one through the process of killing me. You know what I mean? Like, I just, I don't want to have someone do that. Which is what Roger does. He's like, shoot me if I become a zombie. Yeah. I'm going to try not I'm to. Just gonna you know, I'm like Netflix and kill. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Shit. All right. So the last character talked about really is Peter. Yeah. Right. The so, wisest and, and the calmest and just like the rock of the ensemble, you know. And as an African American, like that's really super fucking refreshing to see in the late seventies. You know. Agreed. I think that like Romero gives us these African American characters, these leading man roles, and essentially they're kind of the same person, right? And they no, you don't think so? No, I think uh, the character in the first movie was a little bit ben. more. Yeah, I think he was a little bit more second guessy. You know, he's a little more of an everyman. He just kind of stayed logical versus you know. Um, Peter, I feel like, is a dedicated professional, right? So he is trained. He knows what to do, and I think that's a part of his identity versus it wasn't really with Ben as much. I always like, – it just strikes me how similar the two characters are. And maybe because I like – I saw Dawn of the Dead before. I watched Night of the Living Dead, you know, as we talked about in that episode last March. And when I was watching Night of the Living Dead, it just struck me that these two characters of Peter and Ben were so similar – and maybe just the way that they handled a group or handled themselves remained calm under pressure. Yeah. And I mean, that was enough for me to even say, like, is this even the same person? You know, obviously it can't. Well, Peter be, wasn't really trying know, to socially but... coordinate, right? He wasn't trying to like keep things calm so much as he just was, right? And his the way he was kind of affected everyone around him versus Ben had this, you know, kind of a harder job to do, you know, with all those other people. You know, he had to kind of slap the sense into some people um, versus Peter was just like, no, Literally. let's get let's get the fuck out of here because this is inevitable. You know? Yeah. No, you're right. I mean, I get that, you know, but he, he is kind of the, the wisest character in the movie. He seems to know, like, what they should do or what they should yeah, not do. In a way, he was a little bit more pragmatic, you know, and, you know, sadly so versus Ben, I think, was a little bit more hopeful, but you know, forceful with what he thought should, should change, you know? I do want to talk about, before we stop talking about characters, uh, the sort of like epic bromance that blossoms between Peter and Roger. And I hope that I'm not reaching too much in this, but I've, I've always sort of felt this way. I felt that they sort of like border on the queer side of things. I don't, I don't think so. Um, I was, I was, I saw your notes on that and I was just like, you know, that's, it's a really cool friendship to see, you know, like a partnership, but this is the time before, you know, hashtag no homo, right? Like where male friends could be close and touchy feely or just like, you know, not have to worry about this whole thing of like, am I being seen as gay or not? Right. It wasn't that that wasn't a thing back then. And I think uh, male friendships have suffered all, especially straight male friendships have suffered a lot, you know, with uh, this, uh, you know, basically this feeling of and ties to homophobia, essentially internal uh, internalized ties to, to homophobia where people constantly have to, Oh, are, are we being seen as gay or do I feel gay or is, you know, and uh, I feel like back then it just didn't have to be that way. And people in audiences didn't view it that way, but you know um, it's fun to think about 
on the on the other hand, you know, <laughs> if it could have been. But. Well, I mean, and this is kind of why I call it a bromance instead of a yeah. romance, right? But th- there are certain moments in the movie, especially when Roger is dying, and he like like sort of like almost tenderly puts a hand on his chest, and he's just like, you know, wait, and you know, they have these these moments together, you know, like they they he has his last breath as a human being in the, in the company of this man. Right. And at the very same moment when we have Steven and Fran having their proposal moment, we have Peter like popping a bottle over his friend's grave. Yeah. Right. And I mean, I'm not saying that if they were left to their own devices in the mall, they would have been fucking somewhere, <laughs> obviously. Right. But I think that they're, I think that their relationship has gone far past friendship at this particular point. I think that they, they sort of trust each other with their lives, yeah. right? And it's I mean it's it's far more than just like friendship to me. I think they they love each other in a, a very special way, right? And it's something that we don't get to see very often in horror movies. I think a lot of male characters in horror movies are very macho, like trying to survive, trying to lead and doing the wrong thing instead of doing what they should be doing. And these two particular people got to know each other in such a way that they could have been happy living together for the rest of the apocalypse, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a level of built up trust there and they trust each other's backgrounds, you know, and that's, that allows for a connection, Yeah, you know, and they, and they, uh, they have this shared history, you know, and I think other that disaster, a lot of the time will provide that, you know, fertile ground for friendships to grow with this, you know, or connections at least to grow from this shared experience, you know? And we got to see the entirety of their relationship. They met, during that raid on that tenement and they didn't trust each other at first. Right. So we, we really got to see the entire thing grow, you know? And so like, while I know that it's not an actual homosexual relationship or homo moment, you know, like it's, it makes me happy to know that like two men can grow to that level of trust and companionship. Yeah. It's a a broke back mountain kind of thing, (laughs) I guess maybe. (laughs) I wish I could quit you. (laughs) I wish we could go shopping. So let's get into a little bit of the effects of this movie by Tom Savini. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I feel like some of the effects are obviously look look more real than others. Um, you know, Tom Savini's actually gone on record talking about how he, he still doesn't like the look of the blood for how it was filmed. Um, like it, it almost looks like melted crayon, and so, you know, and it that does, wasn't yeah. purposeful, but, and he wished he, he could have done it a little bit better, but uh like I said, many of these like look fake or, or dated at this point, but some of the effects, like such as like the pulling of the viscera out of people's torsos, are still so jarring because they're not only practical effects, those intestines were real. They were actually what? cow intestines. Same with uh, Day of the Dead for the next movie. A lot of the viscera is real and people would get sick you know, on screen when they're filming these scenes for hours and you've got the hot studio lights and uh, these intestines are basically <laughs> cooked raw. Oh, God. Yeah, you know? <laughs> and so that's why some of this looks, you know, so jarring. You know, I was like, that doesn't, almost it doesn't look real because there's not enough blood for these intestines to be put, being pulled out. But no, apparently they were just under, you know, they were real disgusting intestines from the butcher. So... I can't even fucking imagine the the smell of that fucking set, you know, but Mm -hmm. I mean, that seems very Tom Savini to me, 
You know, I mean, like when I think about practical effects, I always think about Tom Savini first. And I think that Dawn of the Dead is probably the reason why, you know, because I, I saw this movie at a very young age and I was just like, OK, so you can do really cool things with makeup mm-hmm. on film and then you try to figure out who did this sort of thing. And it started the whole love affair with me with Tom Savini. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? I just I just love, love his effects, especially in this movie. Yep. Some of the things that I don't care for. Is like the the actual look of normal zombies, right? Yeah, and he said they yeah. they look a lot more blue in the film than he had yeah. wanted, gray and blue. And I feel like that was because he had kind of prepped some of the makeup effects for the first one, which is going to be black and white, you know. And mm-hmm. he just wasn't prepared. Like he's just this, you know, this guy that didn't really have that much experience, honestly, in the field. And I feel like this was kind of his thesis to kind of go on and do better things. But yeah, there's some mistakes in this film. Well, and this is like one of the only zombie movies that we see blue or gray looking zombies. It wasn't too far after this, that they started to look super disgusting, yeah. you know, all the time, yeah. you know, but, uh, I will always remember from a very young age, like not being super scared of Dawn of the dead because they didn't look scary they look like blue people just (laughs) stumbling around you know and so it wasn't until someone's like ripping them apart and pulling out their innards that i'm like oh this is kind of (laughs) gross but he did some amazing things in this movie i think that that scene in the mall where he gets his machete stuck in that zombie's head you know there's just like moments like that that i think are just classic when it comes to special effects and makes me wish that we still made movies like that let's talk about the music a little bit so there's, I mean, obviously there's, there's some, uh, memorable music to the credits, like we were, you know, but in, uh, <laughs> Romero's theatrical version, most of the music is actually from the DeWolf music, uh, library. So like a compilation of stock music scores and cues, right? Really? So he didn't actually have like an, like, a, obviously he didn't really have like any kind of like original or orchestral, you know, score, but, um, the music heard playing in a sequence in the mall over the film's credits, obviously, that we've been discussing is the instrumental titled The Gunk, a polka-styled tune from the Dwarf Music Library that we talked about with a, a chorus of zombie moans added by Romero. Yeah, okay. I know what you're but talking about. <laughs> for the international version, the music is by Goblin and uh, Dario Gento himself. So... I haven't really heard or seen that version. I guess uh, I think the theatrical has a little bit of Goblin in it, but the, apparently, like the original or like the international version, has like a lot of music by Goblin. In preparing for this episode, I was going to watch. I have a Blu-ray, right? And I was like, you know, I'm not going to watch the Blu-ray. I'm going to look and see if there's an ultra high def version that I can rent on Amazon. Yeah. And there's not. You know, there's not one that I could find. And so I pulled out my Blu-ray and I, I've, I've had it for a, a number of years, if not more than a decade. And so I looked up on Amazon to see, you know, just how old my Blu-ray is or if it's still available or not. And it's going for like $139 yeah, Actually, that's on the next Amazon thing I have right written in my notes to talk about. <laughs> the film is hard to find at this point. I couldn't find it on streaming and finally had to watch it on YouTube. Apparently, I thrown away all my DVDs and just kept like uh, some of my Blu-rays in 4K thinking I'd be able to buy them or stream them later um because i had this movie and i but even on on blu-ray an american version of 
Blu-rays listed on, on sale for Amazon and Walmart, uh, and I think maybe even Best Buy for $150. Something is going on with the distribution of this movie. I don't know what, but it's hard to find now, which is really insane because like you can't understate how much of a classic and how important this is in the horror genre. You know, it's mm-hmm. fucking in the Night of the Living Dead series. Like, I don't understand this. So yeah, your your Blu-ray is worth $150. And I'm so glad that I have it because I got to watch it. But I was looking at it, I was like, I, w- I want to see which versions were on there. And it's just the theatrical version released in the United yeah. States. I'm like, that's fine. It's what I'm used to. It's okay. I would like to see some of these other cuts eventually. But um, what a sharp contrast between this and Night of the Living Dead, where there's a thousand yeah. different versions just because of that copyright issue. It's like George A. Romero learned his lesson hardcore. Well, it's just yeah. interesting because they also have these like do you know these dual movie releases on Blu-ray, like on Best Buy and Amazon and stuff, where you can get um, the Dawn of the Dead remake, but also with Romero's version of like Land of the Dead. So it's like, what? <laughs> what? What is going on with like the original Dawn of the Dead? Like it just it doesn't make sense to me. So uh, maybe I need to do a little bit more research. But yeah, there's it's hard to find. Uh, so I, I might put the. Uh, the actual link to the YouTube movie. Um, that's actually not even behind a paywall for some reason, but it's just there. Uh, it's not great quality, but that's how I had to basically watch it for, for this uh, deep dive <laughs> because I apparently had thrown away all my old DVDs. I thought about trying to sell my copy for like $300, <laughs> but no, then I'd want to watch it the very next day. So but one of the things that I did not know about this movie, like shockingly, is the just the huge involvement by Dario Argento. Like I, I he was mm-hmm. a, he's right there in the credits too as a script supervisor, you know, and he he essentially recut the film himself for international audiences and scored it himself with Goblin, you know, for the international. Aud- it's like I had no idea that Dario Argento, you know, behind all of those uh, like Suspiria and like all of those. Um, giallos that he did you know and we've covered um and talked about a lot of his his work on right here on this podcast but i just had no idea how much involved he was with this with this film and i didn't either really i mean so a lot of the movies that we deep dive into i've just seen a bunch of times and i've never taken the time to like research any of its history or things like that i've always known that dawn of the dead had a certain like giallo feel to it you can tell just by like the color of the blood and like the level of violence ish you know but um i didn't know that he was that heavily influenced in the making of the movie. I always knew that Dawn of the Dead did very well internationally. That's why we have movies like Zombie 2, right? By Fulci. And like zombie movies like took over in Italy after this sort of thing. But like you said, I was sort of surprised. And I don't know why I've never noticed his name in the credits before. I've yeah. seen this movie tens of times. <laughs> it's one of those things where reality just kind of shifted. <laughs> now mm. we know. But uh, I got some fun facts if you're ready to move on to those. Oh, yes. I want to hear so, this. So not many. There's a huge amount of, of you know, uh, did you know trivia for this film, but I've only picked out uh, essentially four that I thought were interesting enough for this segment. Okay. But uh, Galen Ross refused to scream during this film. She felt that Fran was a strong female character, and if she screamed, the strength would be lost. She told this to George A. Romero once when he told her to scream. He never asked her again. That is an amazing story, yeah. actually, you know? And, I mean, she's going to make another George A. Romero movie a few years down the line where she screams almost the entire time that she's in it. <laughs> so. Womp, womp. <laughs> so the extras who appeared in this film were reportedly given $1 in cash, a donut, and a Dawn of the Dead t-shirt. <laughs> 
worth it. I don't know. With all those intestines <laughs> and shit, man. <laughs> am I, I going to no, need to totally worth a dollar it. for this? <laughs> I am still kicking myself because uh, I had the chance to sort of like go onto the set and maybe even be an extra on a zombie TV show. Because my, my cousin is the director of security and grounds for the Ramrock Express, where they were filming Land of the Dead. I don't know, Land of the Dead. One of the Walking Dead spinoffs, right? They were doing it all in that uh, stadium. And he was like, do you want to come down and like watch things? And I was like, no, I probably couldn't make it. Blah, blah, blah. So, fuck yeah. that. I could have been a zombie. Which is like one of my dreams in life. To hold an Oscar and to be well, a zombie. Well, if you grew up during a certain time in, you know, Pittsburgh, you know, that you'd essentially, your one of your dreams of growing up was to be in a George A. Romero zombie film, you know? So... Wrong place, growing wrong up time. in the 70s and 80s <laughs> but yeah so anyway peter is the first person in the franchise to refer to the undead as zombies the term is used by a reporter on the radio in night of the living dead in 1968 but this is the first time a character has actually said it and referred to them as such and i had that in my thoughts when i was watching this movie and i, I think it's the very first time i'm watching this <clears throat> that i was like oh my god is this the first time we've heard a person in a movie a character say zombies and it's toward the end of the mm-hmm. movie right because I was so like flabbergasted by it that I had to pause the movie and like type that note into my phone. <laughs> I was just like, this seems like a pivotal yeah. moment. So my last fun fact is is more of like just an idea, right? So George A. Romero described this as the balance point in the series when the number of humans versus the number of zombies is roughly equal. And I never really thought of it like that. If you think Night of the Living Dead, there's more humans, right? And this one, it's like the tipping point. This movie is the tipping Mm -hmm. point for this disaster. And then the next, uh, humanity is essentially just decimated, right? So this is, I just had never really thought of that. You know, I thought this is all kind of happened in Night of the Living Dead and this is all the aftermath is the start of the aftermath. But no, this is definitely the tipping point. This is the balance area for the series. And I, I just hadn't thought of that before. And re- I haven't really either, you know, and that makes tons of sense, you know. And I, I think we can see that in the fact that, you know, there's still broadcasts on the television and we don't we don't see that anymore in subsequent films. We can see that one scientist sitting there during the broadcast rubbing his temples and be like, we've got to stay logical. We've got to stay logical, you know. And then the next thing you know, he's off the air because he's probably dead. Yeah, it's the equivalent of, you know, the last smart guy just rocking back and forth in a corner in the dark, you know. <laughs> yeah. Was that episode of Twilight Zone where he has all the time to read the books, but he breaks his glasses? I don't know. Like, would our society last so long with half the population being essentially flesh-eating zombies? I don't know. Honestly, I think that these movies are being very generous (laughs) with society. I think think that if this were to happen in real life, I think for the most part, we're going to be dead in a matter of, like, like weeks, like this is. I don't think it will take very long for society to topple. And but I, I do know that um, you know Anderson Cooper would be the last surviving news anchor <laughs> running through the streets with some poor camera person. <laughs> it's probably Kathy Griffin or something like that. <laughs> He's like, hold this camera, Kathy. <laughs> Damn it! Oh I can't see that. I love Anderson Cooper. He's so dreamy. Speaking anyway. of which, <laughs> let's move on to your questions. So here at the Film Flamers, we have a series of questions that we ask about every movie that we watch in Dawn of the Dead, 1978, is no different. So first of all, Chris, is Night is Dawn of the Dead a horror movie? Oh, yes. I know. What a stupid <laughs> question. I'm sorry. 
<laughs> Anytime we use the word viscera in a conversation, <laughs> I'm pretty sure we can assume it's a horror movie. Yeah, it's, it's a horror movie through and through, but it's an important and poignant one just because of all the societal commentary on it. And that's it's uh, that's happened a lot in horror, but it's never been so clear, uh, you know, and resonating as it is here. And I think that's important, you know, and I think horror can can talk about a lot of things just like fantasy or sci-fi can. You know, it's much easier when you... Um, to talk about things when you're, when you're in these situations that are so fantastical, you know, and, um, it's, it's, it's never the tool of, of horror is, is, is not used more, you know, importantly than I think it is, is used here as an example. I agree. And I, oftentimes on the podcast, I will talk about, you know, the, the battle between style and substance, right? And I think that we had the, a similar conversation about Night of the Living Dead. And I think in that movie, you, you have a lot of substance and very little style. But I think in this particular instance in George, George Romero's career, he found a really nice balance between both. I think it's yeah. a very stylish movie to watch. I think it's well shot. And I think that he has like substance that most people can understand and grasp without having to think too hard about it, right? And that's a really good way to get your message across. If you make it so convoluted that no one understands what you're talking about, you've lost all of your substance. And in this particular movie, he doesn't have that problem. Agreed. Are we done? (laughs) (laughs) Secondly... Were you scared while watching Dawn of the Dead? Yeah, yeah. Not this time, but I mean, when I watched it the first couple times, I think that there are some resonating real moments of horror, whether they're shocking or disgusting or moments of tension that ratchet up. You know, I I think there's a lot of different kinds of horror in here, you know, existential. And, you know, this is a a buffet of horror. I feel like this is just such a, you know, it's just an embarrassment of riches. You know, Uh, thank you, Jorge. it really gives you everything that you want. I like you said. Um, I I know that when I was very very young watching this movie, I wasn't scared by it. Probably because I was too young to to understand what was going yeah. on. Really, it's just a picture of like stumbling around. But as I got older and watched the movie again and again and again, um, you know the the dread starts to creep in, and I think that scenes like. Uh, Roger's death, you know, when that he finally pulls that sheet off of his face and you see it's a zombie. I mean, that, that is horrifying to me. And I have been scared watching this movie at that particular moment. Yeah. Um, you know, as far as like gross outs go, like I'm not quite as scared by that as I am revolted, but I guess it holds a part of being scared. Yeah. You know? So, um, what would you rate Dawn of the Dead out of five stars? I had rated it on Letterboxd a four out of five. I also rate Dawn of the Dead four out of five stars. Okay. <laughs> I kind of went back and forth on this particular viewing because I, since we started the podcast, I'm starting to think about things on a rating scale more than I used to. And I was leaning toward a three and a half. And I was like, just because there are some sloggy moments to me and... Like I, at the end of the day, I'm like, no, that's that's ridiculously ro- yeah. low rating, and this movie deserves so much more praise than that. The movie is more important than anything a three could offer, and I think that a four is the absolute lowest that you know that I could give ever for this film. I'm I'm kind of wondering why I didn't rate it higher, you know, like a four point five or something. But um, you know, it's not a perfect film. It's got some issues, but. Overall, it's just so important and well done, you know, and it makes you think. Yeah, it's true. So, Chris, the last question, and some would say most important, 
who's the hottest guy in Dawn of the Dead? I'm curious, after more than a year, I'm wondering who those some people are that say that's most important. Me. (laughs) (laughs) Me and the voices in my head. Aren't we important enough? (laughs) Roger. Yes. It's Roger. Roger Roger is the most attractive. (laughs) At least in the first half, as soon as he just like loses his shit, though, you know, like Peter. Peter's got a really nice body, you know, if we're going to talk about shit like that. I mean, like when he's up there playing tennis by himself on the roof, I was just like, hey, daddy, come on. (laughs) But I really think that Roger's pretty attractive. I was watching this and I was trying to think about who you were going to say. And I was like, by God, if he says Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> who would choose Stephen? My God. Fran. Fran would. But, as long as- but does she? Does she really? No, no. She turns him down over dinner. She has no problem saying. I feel like a lot of that, I feel like a lot of that relationship is based on off obligation. <laughs> Pregnancy. <laughs> So. Pregnancy and the fact that he's the one that flew them to safety. Yeah. In the hell she has no problem spot. saying no to a marriage proposal, and she's like, "Oh, but the steak is delicious." You know, what I mean? <laughs> 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 oh yeah, it's the only choice. Maybe like zombie number four. I don't know, but yeah, there's like <laughs> like four characters in this movie. Three of them are men, and we're both like Roger immediately that's good i mean it's pretty fucking that's definitive definitely not tom savini poor tom oh savini. yeah he's he's not attractive no. <laughs> well everybody i think that about wraps up our conversation of george a. romero's dawn of the dead uh we'd like to know what you think about this movie or what you think about our conversation about it you can find us on social media at the film flamers on twitter facebook instagram and now letterboxd and you can email us at tiredqueens at filmflamers.com or call our hotline at 1-972-666-7733. Let your voice be heard. Let us know everything you think about Dawn of the Dead, and we will play your voicemail on the air and respond to it. So we also like to read reviews from Apple Podcasts on our Shooting the Flames episode. So head over there, leave us that five-star rating and a little review, and we will read that. We also like to announce new patrons on our Shooting the Flames episode. So head over to patreon.com slash the film flamers and get all of our bonus content and early access to episodes sometimes days or weeks early for as little as two dollars and no conversation about dawn of the dead would be complete without talking about its remake so zach's zach snyder's dawn of the dead will be our next deep dive that's two this month well robert i'm really really tired so i feel like i need to go have some Sweet dreams. I'm not so tired. I think I might head to the mall. Time is up. <laughs> <laughs>